power. It shapes our world. What power do we really have? Does it come with incredible wealth or with a position of governance? There is a power that comes from God. A power that enables. A power that changes lives forever. The power of hospitality. What's up, Bethlehem? Hi. Hi. How's it going? Oh, it's awesome to be back with you guys again. It's so warm. Um, <laughs> no, look, it's so cool to be with you guys. Um, I don't know if you realize this, but it's actually been uh, pretty much just over three months uh, that Golden Sands has been up and running out in Papamoa, which is crazy, eh? It's crazy that it's... Thank you, Dan. Dan's with us. Um, yeah, crazy that it's been three months now since we kind of have started and get gotten going, and we've had a pretty eventful uh, few months. Um, and we've got some big things that have come through. We've got some carpeting. That's nice. We have heaters, also very pleasant. Well, at least heaters that don't involve actual flames that we're almost about to see your children's hands off. So we have better air conditioning systems in. Uh, and I knew we were doing all right when the other last week I was preaching and I looked out into the audience and I saw one of the ladies grab her contact card and start fanning herself. And I was like, we have arrived. <laughs> Someone is too warm, because for those first few months, we were on concrete floors and very poor heaters, and it was only like the top tier of tough Christians who could come to Golden Sands. Like those of you who are interested in the SAS, you guys could handle it with us. Um, but now we've got some of those things uh, lined up. And I just want to take a moment to also thank you guys. Um, I don't know, some of you may have been around for this. Some of you might not know me. I'm calling the pastor of Golden Sands Baptist, by the way. Um, yeah, some of you may not realize this, but back in May, we held a big appeal uh, for Golden Sands to help get our launch costs underway and to kind of get us going. And during the month of May, we raised $34,000, which is crazy. So thank you guys so much for your generosity. We genuinely as a church would not be where we are if it weren't for you, for your help, for your prayer, for your support. Um, I mean, we still have musicians who are coming over and helping us to get our music teams underway. We've got I mean, Monica is, pre is preaching there this morning so that I can be here. So to me, the, the growth of Golden Sands and the fact that we exist is a wonderful testament to what can happen when churches work together. And when the body of Christ and the Baptist pull together to accomplish something, some cool things can happen. So thank you guys so much for that. We are doing well. Um, in a couple of weeks, we've got our first baptism coming up, which is super exciting. Um, at the end of this month, we have our second child dedication that we're doing as well. And then just the other week, we hosted our first youth group event where we had like 15, 16 youth come out for one evening, so, which is huge for like a church that hasn't even really gotten going yet. So we're looking to actually start a youth, term, youth group meeting weekly by term four of this year. So it's really, really cool some of the things that are picking up and moving forward. So thank you guys so much for your support. And uh, if you're feeling like things are a bit too cushy, come on over to the other side of the city, hang out with us. Um, we're there every week, and uh, it's actually not that far. I know you Bethlehem people will be like, it's on the other side of the city. From here, it's like 25 minutes on a Sunday morning, so you have no excuse. Come out and visit us and say hi. Um, one other thing before we jump into the sermon today that I want to acknowledge is today is Father's Day, which is super exciting. Um, but I also want to acknowledge for those of you in this room where today is actually quite a difficult day for you. Uh, those of you who have had really difficult upbringings, difficult relationships with your fathers, or maybe a loss of a father as a child, or for those of you who have lost children, 
um, or want to be fathers but are unable to because of different circumstances. We just want to just acknowledge you and say that we see you. And we understand today might be difficult for you too, so it's okay for you to not be super excited about it all. We've got space for that within our community. So with that, let's pray. Uh, Jesus, I thank you that you are here with us today. I thank you that whenever your people gather and your word is opened up, you do something. Um, Lord, we thank you for the fathers in our community, for those who are wonderful, wonderful examples and are doing an amazing job raising up their families. Um, but also, Lord, we want to acknowledge before you those who for today is very difficult. Um, God, thank you that here in this church community, we can have room for both. We can celebrate with those who can celebrate, and we can mourn with those who mourn, and you can be with us in the midst of all of that. So I pray that your grace and your peace would be here with us today, and that you would open up yourself to us as we learn from your word once again. In your name I pray, amen. Amen. All right. Power of hospitality. Feels a bit underwhelming sometimes, eh? When Christians talk about powerful things, if we think about like powerful moments of the gospel, things that are really exciting, we normally think of like big gatherings, eh? We think of like the Billy Grahams who come through and preach a giant, you know, stadium full of people. Or we think about maybe some of those big meetings that happen in Africa where there are reports of like, 500,000 people all coming forward to hear the gospel at once. We're like, yeah, we're going to have someone preach. The word's going to go out. That's the power of the gospel to transform lives. That's often how we think about it. Eh? It's how I often think about it. So when you have the power of hospitality, it feels a little bit like an oxymoron, like something that doesn't fit there. You're like, ah, yeah, hospitality. Because it's a word we don't use often. Yeah, outside the church, if we talk about hospitality, that usually refers to an entire industry, right? So I'm part of the hospitality industry. I work in a hotel, I work in a cafe, I work in a restaurant. It's my job to make people feel comfortable, otherwise I won't get paid. So there's like a, a professional relationship there. Um, if we think about it in the church, we're not like anti-hospitality, but it's not going to be on our top list, three list of important things, right? It's not on many churches' manifestos of what goes on. You know, like as Christians, we love the preaching of the word. Get some white guy like me who's going to come up and preach the gospel. We love that, right? We love singing. Well, most of us love singing, and we'll sing in most of our services, and we enjoy that, and, you know, we'll have communion. We've got some of these things, but if you're talking about hospitality, it's usually like, yeah, if we can get to it, great. If we've got some time for hospitality after we do all the big things, then cool, that's awesome, we like it. But is it like a fundamental thing? Probably not, at least not in like the Western church. It's not really a huge MO for us, which is fascinating because while for us, hospitality can often be like a weird little optional extra, really for about the first thousand years of the church, hospitality was a central way, if not arguably the central way that the gospel was communicated, that the people proclaimed the gospel. If we wanted to know about what God was doing, it was usually found in the context of hospitality, which is interesting, isn't it? It's not, a, it's not something we would often think through today as that, inviting somebody over to your house, that's going to be what communicates the gospel? It's an odd one. One day, Jesus told the story like this. So one day, Jesus was at a house with some Pharisees. He'd been invited over for dinner. And in typical Jesus fashion, whenever he got invited over to somebody's house for dinner, things got real awkward real quick. 
Like, we as Christians were like, we love Jesus, we'd love to have him for over for dinner. That's not true. If he was at your house for dinner, everything would have been awkward. Because that's what he does. Jesus just makes things weird sometimes. And so he gets to this Pharisee's house for dinner. And there's this guy, he's, one of the guys there, he's sick. He's got this big bloated abdomen. Um, and it's the Sabbath day. It's this holy day that you're not supposed to work. And so everybody's like, what's Jesus going to do? He heals people, but it's Sabbath day. He shouldn't be healing people to respect God. Ah. Of course, Jesus is like, well, that's dumb. Heals the guy. And then all the Pharisees are like, darn, Jesus, right? And so then they kind of like start fighting over each other. And then it comes dinner time. And as it becomes dinner time, the table is all spread out. And Jesus is sitting there watching as these Pharisees start elbowing their way through trying to get to best, the best spots. Because there's always good spots on the table, Right? I mean, you guys know when you go out to those group dinners, no one wants to get that table on the corner, that seat on the corner at the end, do you? Because you spend the whole meal going, what? What'd they say? Ha, 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 ha. I'm just going to eat my food. You know, like, so these Pharisees are elbowing their way to the best spots. And Jesus seeing this, he looks at them and he's like, guys, you know, when you're invited over for a dinner, don't take the best spot. Because what if someone who's like more powerful or more like honorable than you shows up, then the host is going to have to take you and move you down to the end of the table. So instead, if you go to one of these meals, go sit on the end. And then when the host sees you in far away, he'll pick you up and move you to a position of honor. Because those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And so Jesus says this, and this must have gotten at least one of those Pharisees upset. Because this Pharisee comes back with this like real snarky comment of like, oh yeah, sure, Jesus, in those days, it will be great to sit at God's table where this doesn't happen. Like real kind of a sarcastic-y little comeback. And Jesus kind of looks at him and he's like, do you know what the kingdom of heaven is like? Do you want to know what the kingdom of God is like? Jesus said, the kingdom of God is like there's this man and he puts on this great banquet and he gets the table lined up with everything all the good spreads. I mean, he slaughters the best lamb. He gets the turkey and the chickens there. He gets the best pork. They were Jews. They didn't eat the pork. They had another animal that was really nice. You know, and then they get out all the spreads and the fixing, and then they load up the table with wine and beer. We're in church. They load it up with juice and Coke, and they got everybody through, and he's like, all right, the table's ready. It's this amazing feast. Let's go out and bring my friends in. So he sends out messengers to go out, and they find the first man and they say, hey, come, come to the table. And this person says, I would, but I just got married. And he does the excuse every new married person does. I got to check with my spouse first. I probably can't make it. And says like, sorry, maybe next time. So then the messengers go out to the next person and they go to a person and say, hey, come, the master's prepared a great banquet. And that person says, ah, oh, sounds cool, but I just bought a field and I gotta go talk with the lawyers, and I gotta get the down payment paid, and I gotta make sure the mortgage is approved. I can't make it, sorry. So they go to a third person and say, come, come to the great banqueting table. And this person says, ah, look, I just bought a couple of oxen, and I gotta get their yokes all lined up, because they're unequally yoked, and they're wreaking havoc in the field, and I gotta go get the plow ready. So, sorry, I can't make it. And so all the messengers go back to the master, and they say, master, no one, no one could come. And the master looks at his table and he says, this will not be empty. I want you to go out and find everyone. Find the lame, find the blind, find the poor, find the sick and the deaf, and bring them in. And so these messengers go and they do just that. 
They find all these people that would never have been together in this place, in this house, at that table, and they get them all lined up ready for the food. But then the messengers say to the master, look, master, we got all the people you asked us to, but there's still more room. And the master says, my banqueting table will not be empty tonight. Go out and find everyone. Go on the highways and the byways. Go to all those little alleyways people are too afraid to go to. Go to those regions where people say, ah, people are too rough there. Don't go talk to them. Go grab those people. Grab everyone who can and bring them in. And so they do, and this great banqueting table is lined up. And all the people who are sitting at it are the people who would never sit together ever in a million years. The blind are sitting next to the poor. The people who are strangers and far away are lined up at this great table. And Jesus says, that's what the kingdom of God is like. That table, that is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Which is fascinating for us, eh? When asked what is the gospel, one of the metaphors we have it for is a story of hospitality. A divine welcome that God offers to everyone. I mean, really, that is the story of the gospel, isn't it? All of us, while we were far from God, caught up, in our, caught up in our own sin, maybe caught up in our own selfishness, maybe stuck in our own brokenness or our own addictions, while we were far from God, strangers, strangers from the church, God came for us. God came in the form of Jesus Christ. He became a human, and in his humanity, he brought all of humanity into the fold of God. There's no one who is now too far to be welcomed in, no one who is too sinful or too dirty, all are welcomed into this great banqueting table where God is. We who were once strangers from God now find a place at his table. The Apostle Paul, he tells it like this. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but you're fellow citizens with God's people and you're members of his household built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. See, in him, the whole building is joined together and it rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. The story of the gospel is a story of hospitality, a story that says, while we were far from God and far from one another, Christ reconciled us to God and reconciled us to one another. And now at this table, people who would have no business sitting next to each other, we all have a place in God's family. It's huge, eh? It's the gospel is a story of hospitality, of divine welcome. And so it's no surprise that this became a key feature for church. This became a key motif that they used when they shared the gospel. I want to read you a letter um, from Pliny the Younger to Emperor Trajan. Um, Pliny the Younger was a governor in uh, about 110 on the northern region of uh, Turkey, near the Black Sea. So he looked after one segment of that empire. And what had happened was, is that during his reign, the Christian church, uh, which he calls the cult, it just exploded. It was growing so rapidly and he didn't know what to do about it. He wasn't sure how he should treat it. Should he punish them all? Should he just let it be? He wasn't sure. So he wrote a letter to the emperor of Rome asking for advice. And what's so interesting about this letter is that it's one of the earliest records we have of the early church, of what they did, of how they worshiped. And the best part of it is it's written by someone who's not a Christian to someone who's not a Christian. 
So this is an outside look at what really defined the church, what really made them who they were. I want to, I want to read a part of it to you because it's, it's so interesting. So Pliny the Younger is writing to Emperor Trajan, and he says this, "'Tis my practice, Lord, to refer to you all matters concerning which I am in doubt. For who can better give guidance to my hesitation or inform my ignorance? He lays it on real thick when he writes to the emperor. Like, oh, great emperor, I am ignorant, help me. He says this, I've never participated in trials of Christians, but I gathered a few, and I interrogated these as to whether they were Christians. And those who confessed, I interrogated a second and a third time, threatening them with punishment. And those who persisted, I ordered executed. For I had no doubt that whatever the nature of their creed, stubbornness and inflexibility and inflexible obstinacy surely deserves to be punished. Nice dude, eh? <laughs> He's basically saying, I don't really know what they believe, but if they refuse me, kill them anyway, because they're stubborn. That's bad. Um, anyway, he goes on to say with some of the few that he was interrogated. They asserted, however, that the sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsibly a hymn to Christ as to a God, and to bind themselves by oath, not to some crime, not to commit fraud, or theft, or adultery, uh, to falsify their trust, or nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon so. So what did they do? They woke up and they sang a song, and then they bound themselves an oath. Not to do any bad things, what was the oath that they bound themselves to? to when this was over, it was their custom to depart and assemble again to partake of food, but ordinary and innocent food. Accordingly, I judged it all the more necessary to find out what the truth was by torturing two female slaves who were called deaconesses, but I soon discovered nothing else but depraved and excessive superstition. Fascinating. Isn't that such an interesting letter? When pushed by the, the general of this whole area, what the sum and substance of their faith was, what was it about them that made them so growing so rapidly and moving so quickly? What about them was so like contagious? Well, they met once a week before dawn to pray to prayer. They sang a song to Jesus as a God. And then they promised to meet later and eat. And not like crazy food, like they weren't doing any crazy weird animal sacrifices before this food. It wasn't a weird occultic process. It was ordinary, innocent food that they ate together. And what's easy for us to miss here is, again, who are the two people that he picks up to interview? We can skip over this if we're not careful. He picks up two slave girls who were called deaconesses. So deaconesses were those who were running. They were officiating the event. They were hosting the meal. And now this is different because there is no other cult, there's no other organization at that time that is allowing their meals to be hosted by two slave girls. You had wealthy businessmen, you had merchants, you had landowners, you had baronesses, people who had owned businesses. They were sitting down to be hosted by slave girls to be presided over. These two slave women were running the meal. Man, if that doesn't speak about a divine welcome, I don't know what does. Because there is no other society where that's happening, 
where rich and poor are sitting next to each other, where slave women are presiding over and hosting meals for other people, not serving, hosting. Crazy. If that doesn't speak about a divine welcome of God in which all are welcome at this table because there is now only one true host and that is Jesus, I don't know what does. And so what happens is people are, they're going to these meals, this simple hospitality, and they're feeling a welcome, an embrace that could only come from God. And so because of this, the church is growing like weeds, like gangbusters, like wildfire. It's spreading across the region. Pliny actually says it this way. He says, I therefore postponed the investigation and hastened to consult you, for the matter seemed to warrant consulting you, especially because of the number involved. For many persons of every age, of every rank, and also of both sexes are and will be endangered. For the contagion of this superstition has spread not only to the cities, but to the villages and the farms. But it does seem possible to check and to cure it. It's certainly quite clear that the the temples, which had almost been deserted, have begun to be frequented. That the established religious rites, long neglected, are being resumed. And that from everywhere, sacrificial animals are coming, for which until now, very few purchasers could be found. What he's saying there is that the church had grown so rapidly and its welcome had become so strong and the power of the gospel being shared through hospitality was so contagious that it was threatening the very economic and religious systems of the day. The temple almost had to shut down because no one was going to it. All the farmers who were growing and raising all these sacrificial animals almost lost their jobs because no one was buying sacrificial animals anymore. It's the reason he was so nervous is because the church had grown so rapidly it had upset the entire order of their society. And how did the gospel spread? For waking up before dawn, singing a hymn to Christ as a God, and promising to meet together later to share ordinary food as slave girls presided over the meal. The power of hospitality, eh? The power of that welcome. Because again, this welcome was so different from what else was there. Now, Greeks and Romans, they, of course, they engaged in hospitality. Everybody has systems of hospitality, but the framework out of which they operated was so different. So Greeks and Romans, they engaged in hospitality, but it was usually to like move up the social ladder. So they'd open up their homes but they'd only want to open up their homes to like, you know, that, you know, that speaker who was coming through, the really good speaker who everybody wants to listen to. Yep, I'll host them. I'll host them. Or a really famous merchant is coming through and he's gonna start trying to set up new sales in our city. Oh yes, we will host this gracious merchant. It was hospitality was a way where you kind of moved up the ladder. And the more honorable people you could host, the further you moved up, and the cooler and the better you were in society. But Christians didn't follow the same system. In fact, Jesus flipped that whole system on its head completely when he said this. Jesus told a parable and he said, look, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came and visited me. The right, then the righteous man will answer him, Lord, 
When did we see, see you hungry and feed you? Or, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or, or needing clothes and, and clothe you? When did we even see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least one of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And so the early church heard those words of Jesus and they took them very seriously. While the whole world engaged in hospitality to move up the social ladder, for the early church, it was to show hospitality to those who could offer you nothing back. For people that weren't going to give you anything in return, in fact, for people that might sully your reputation a little bit, those were the ones that Christians are like, we'll have them. You come into my house. Because they had this firm belief that in the, in the face of the stranger, in the face of the person that they don't or didn't know, there Jesus was. The writer of Hebrews also said it this way, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. This was the basis for their whole world. This is how they lived and they shared the gospel by looking at the face of a stranger and seeing Jesus in them. I wonder if we can do a bit of an experiment. Um, can I get you guys all to stand up? Don't worry, this won't be too weird. Just a little bit, but not too weird. And if you don't like it, don't worry. I got a church on the other side of the city. Um, <laughs> uh -huh. What I want you to do is I want you to look around the room and find someone who you don't know, and I need you to make eye contact with them. Okay? Find someone you don't know and full-on eye contact. Embrace the awkwardness, people. Own it. Own it. Find someone you don't know, look them in the eye. Look them in the eye. Hold it. Hold it. Hold it. Hold it. Some of you are talking. I didn't say you're allowed to talk. Hold it. All right, all right, all right. All right, now look back at me. That person, was that weird? It was weird, wasn't it? It was totally weird. It was awkward, right? Because we feel weird engaging with strangers that way. But the promise of the gospel and hospitality is in the face of that stranger, in that awkwardness, in that tension where you don't know them, there Jesus will be. There Jesus will be. All right, sit down. Feel free to have a seat. Feel free to have a seat. You're right. Because it's easy to show hospitality for people that you know. It's easy to have friends over to your house. But what about for the person who you don't know? It's in that awkwardness. It's in that tension of how do I get to know you? How do I meet you? When both people are out of their comfort zones, it's there that somehow Jesus shows up and begins to move both people out of their comfort zones and closer to each other and thereby closer to Christ. There's, a, um, there's an early church leader called Cyprian of Carthage. Um, in about the third century, uh, the Roman Empire, so about this third century, this plague sweeps the whole empire of Rome. And it's wreaking havoc, it's terrifying. Um, people who look back at it now reckon it might have been smallpox. Although, just as a side note, I have no idea how they know it was smallpox. How do you look back 2,000 years and be like, yeah, definitely smallpox. But anyway, they think it was smallpox. And it was, it was spreading like wildfire, and so many people were succumbing to it. It got to a point where about 5,000 people were dying a day because of this plague. And people were terrified. I mean, we're scared of sickness now, like we're scared of cancer now, even with all of our amazing medical stories and our medical ability. Imagine 2,000 years ago when there's really no great understanding of medicine. All you know is that you can get sick and die and you don't know how or why. 
the fear was immense. And so what happened is as soon as anyone showed any symptoms of being sick, before you know it, they were kicked out of their homes and they were abandoned to the streets. Husbands kicked out, mothers kicked out, children being abandoned at the, at the steps of temples because they were showing signs of symptoms of sickness. And people were terrified that this would be the next thing to claim them. Well, in Carthage, the uh, governor of the city, he blamed the whole plague on the Christians. See, because the Christians were like little rebels. They weren't worshiping the gods that everyone else did. And because they weren't worshiping the gods, the gods got angry and sent a plague. So it's the fault of these Christians. And so he ordered Cyprian and the Christians there to offer sacrifices, to appease the gods, to kill the plague so that people might live. Now, obviously, Cyprian doesn't want to start worshiping other gods, but he knows something must be done. The church has to do something. It can't just stand idly by. And so he goes back and he rereads those verses in Matthew, where he reads about that moment where Jesus says, I was sick and you came out and cared for me. And he looked back at his church and he said, church, Jesus is outside of our doors. Jesus is sick on the steps of the temple. He's alone. We cannot close our door to him. And so he led this church in this amazing response to go out and care for the community of Carthage. And from their blinders and from their windows, the rest of the city looked on as the Christians went out and they found the dead. They picked them up and they buried them. They found the sick who were kneeling on the steps of the temples and brought them back to their houses and cared for them. They found the children who were abandoned and they brought them in to find a community, a place to belong. Man, can you, can you imagine what that does in the eyes of Carthage? These guys are supposed to be the ones causing the plague, but they're out there putting themselves at risk to care for our own people. And do you know what happens to the church in Carthage? <sighs> Grows like wildfire. Because here is a community that is not, afraid of, is not afraid of that isolation. Even death itself holds no power over them. They don't fear death as the way the rest of us do because they've experienced a welcome and a life that comes from something different. Something that is true and pure. And so the church in Carthage just grows like crazy because Christians showed hospitality. This is the power of hospitality. And I especially think about that for our days. Like nowadays, if we're wanting to tell people about the gospel, what's Nine times out of ten, not always, but usually our tactic is your job is to go out and find all the, the heathens, them sinners, those dirty people that you work with that you like, but you have to call them sinners anyway. You got to go find all those sinners, and then you got to drag them kicking and screaming in somewhere like here, and then you got to get some numpty like me to preach at them, right? And then during the sermon, you might just do your little, like the little elbow thing of being like, yeah, you hear that welcoming bit? You sinner. Um, that's often how our evangelism strategies go, right? Like if we want the power of the gospel to spread, we gather them in, have someone preach a good message to them. Or maybe we train in apologetics. We try to get all the right arguments. If we can just convince them of this thing, then they might become a Christian. If we can just get them to hear the right speaker, then yep, then they'll convert. It's a little problematic, isn't it? I mean, no pressure from me. What if I preach a crappy sermon? I'm not going to be on point all the time. Probably not on point today, but nor is Craig. We'll see what our hit rates are. Um, <laughs> he's not here. It's fine. Don't tell him. Um, 
but it's all based on whether hopefully I can communicate it in a good way. And even with that system, what's your role? Well, I guess your role is just to use all of your friendships and your networks, like, I don't know, just to bring people in and then sit there? Is that really the fullness of the picture, the power of the gospel, for you to bring people in to come listen to someone? Maybe there's a better way that the gospel can be proclaimed. Maybe there's a way that the church knew throughout history that proclaims the gospel that we could re-tap into that could show the gospel to our community here in Tauranga. I mean, let's take, for example, there's um, what, 300 of us in here. Um, let's assume that the first service didn't listen to anything that I said because they're early morning rising do-gooders that shouldn't listen to anything, right? So say just you guys listen to this service and you think, all right, I'm going to start engaging to this in hospitality. I'm going to invite some people over. We're not going to invite people over every week because I'm not Superman. Uh, so maybe twice a month, maybe twice a month, I'll look to invite somebody over to my house. I'll invite a stranger over to my house for dinner just to get to know them and let them know that I see them and I welcome them. Well, if we do that, just twice a month, 350 people, every month, 700 people or families will get welcomed into someone's home. Over the course of a year, over 7,000 people will get welcomed into the course, welcomed into someone's home and get to experience that divine welcome that God has given to us that he offers to other people. 7,000 people, you do that over a couple of years, the entirety of Tauranga could be invited over to someone's house for a meal. It's not that hard. Now, that doesn't mean that every meal that you invite someone over for, you have to invite them over and then preach the gospel to them, because that's just weird. Also, that's treating people as projects, and that's the opposite of hospitality. No, sometimes you'll invite people up over, and yet yeah, the gospel might not come up. It might not come up that you're a Jesus follower. But if you invite people over enough, enough times, and if your life is really sold out for God, and Jesus really is the mainstay of who you are, it's going to come out. It just does. When I was part of a band in the UK, um, the whole point was for us to go and play shows in pubs and clubs and bars and tell people about Jesus. We didn't have to spend a lot of time talking or preaching about the gospel for people to know we were Christians. Just by the fact that I didn't try to go home with a different girl every night suddenly communicated that something was different. And it came up really easy. It doesn't, it's not hard. It's not forced. It's bringing people to your house and saying, there is a space for you here at this table. God has welcomed me, and so I welcome you. Uh, Christine Pohl, who's written an amazing book. Oh, try again. Try again. Hey, Christine Pohl, who's written an amazing book on hospitality. She says it this way. Hospitality resists boundaries that endanger persons by denying their humanness. It saves others from the invisibility that comes from social abandonment. And sometimes, by the very act of a welcome, a vision for a whole new society is offered, a small evidence that transformed relations are possible. School A. Even in that instance of one small welcome, you get a glimpse of a whole new society that is offered. That is the gospel. And that's something that any of us can do. And it doesn't mean you need to put on a big spread every time. In fact, the Benedictine monks, who have been practicing hospitality for the past 1,500 years, as part of their practice, they actually advise their monks not to make fancy meals for people. Not because they don't think their guests deserve it. Absolutely, they think their guests deserve the best. But they say to their monks, no, don't prepare a fancy meal for them, lest you get caught in the trap of thinking the food is the most important part of the evening. 
as long as when you focus too much on creating a great meal and the person's become secondary, we've missed what hospitality was about. Instead, create a simple meal so that the whole focus of your time is the person and giving them this divine welcome. So you hear that? Doesn't need to be fancy spreads. Fish and chips every Friday night. Bob's your uncle. We're great. Not hard. It's not hard. Anyone can go out and buy a whole couple scoops of chips, chuck them out on the table with some tomato sauce, and hang out. In that moment, God can do something. That's the power of the gospel through hospitality. So as we come into a close here, there's just a few things that's worth mentioning. There are some cautions that we have to have. There are some practical limits. Often when we hear these messages, as good Christians who want to be compassionate, we're like, let's go invite all the homeless people to live with us forever and we'll feed them every day. Gah! You know, like you feel like there's good intentions. And there are people who throughout history have then tried to go and devote themselves wholly and completely to this. Difficulty is that usually within three months that person burns out and they actually end up further from God and further from hospitality than had they put wise limits in place. For us to think that we can go and solve every person's problem completely all the time is actually to put ourselves in the place of the only person who can do that, which is God. Limits are not sinful. They're part of being human. And we have limits and we need to know when to place them. The second one is just smart boundaries. I know people that have done amazing hospitality and literally inviting people into their homes, those who are recovering from addiction, those who are struggling to find housing, those who are in the midst of difficult uh, uh, domestic issues, they invite them to their house and they live with them. And that is amazing, and it's an amazing way that the gospel is proclaimed to that person. Having said that, there are periods for that person where that hospitality ends up causing a lot of pain to their relationships, potentially with their children. Maybe it causes undue stress on their spouse or their marriage. And so there's wisdom that we need to have to know when to put smart boundaries. Times where we need to pull back and create some firmer boundaries between ourselves and the others for the sake of our health and our family. And so the way Christine Pohl talks about it is that churches that engage in hospitality well, they have a culture of grace, where they know that there are seasons where some of us can give a lot, where you've got the capacity to be very hospitable and invite a lot of people over and meet with a lot of different strangers, and then there are seasons where you don't. And if you're at a season where you can't, that doesn't make you any less Christian than, the, than those who can. There's a culture of grace around hospitality. But when I was doing prep work and when I was thinking about this service, um, man, can you just feel the potential of what it would be like if we as the church grabbed onto hospitality, not as an optional extra, but as a key way that the gospel is proclaimed, a key way that we live out our faith? Any of us can grab some fish and chips, chuck them on a table, and invite someone we don't know over for dinner. It's not that hard. And in that awkwardness, that's where Jesus promises to meet with us. So as we finish, I want to ask you just a few questions. Have you experienced this life-changing welcome of God? Because the whole basis for this is not off you being a good person. The whole basis of this is based off of you yourself have experienced the divine welcome that comes from God. That welcome that is so hard to put into words, but the knowledge that God has moved heaven and earth to say that you are a part of his family. If you haven't experienced that, I would love to pray for you that you would. Because that is the truth of the gospel, is that God has made a way for each and every one of us to be part of his family and to experience the life-giving power that comes from being in relationship with him.
Second one is, how can you open up your life to welcome the strangers around you? So not just inviting over your friends or the people that you've known for 20 years, but what ways can you open up yourself, give some space to your life to meet some people who you don't know? Perhaps someone who's from a different country than you or doesn't speak the same language as you or someone who you've seen for years but have never actually gotten to know. What could you do to open up a way to show hospitality to that person? And then finally, how can we as a church live out this radical call to show the gospel through hospitality? At Golden Sands, we're having to go through this question and we're having to figure out what do we do in our services and our structure and our life groups to, to address this question. You guys at BBC have to ask that question. What does it look like for Bethlehem to live out the power of hospitality here in your local community? Because we're not just individuals. We're a community. When the church of Carthage put their minds to it, they cared for the sick. What would it look like for Bethlehem to engage in a story of hospitality here in Tauranga Moana? These are the questions we have to wrestle through. These are the things we have to carry. But this is the power of the gospel through hospitality. God has shown us such a profound welcome that our lives are forever changed. So we now as the church can offer that welcome to others. And we can invite them to this grand table where people who would normally have no business sitting together find a place and find a home. Would you stand with me as we pray? Jesus, I thank you for who you are and for what you've done. The only reason we can gather and the only reason we can do anything is because you have literally made a way where there was no way. While we were strangers and far away, you became one of us and said that there is a space for us here at your table. God, help us to know that. Help us to turn away from any forms of living that rejects that call. Help us to continue to turn away from our own selfish, selfishness and pride and to surrender and let ourselves have a place at your table. And Lord, would you give us the courage? Would you challenge us as you challenged Cyprian to look outside of our walls, to look outside of our house? Give us eyes to see the stranger, those who feel invisible, Give us the courage to show them the same welcome that you have shown us. And Lord, we pray that in those simple moments, in those small meals, in those little houses, in these small living rooms, that your powerful gospel would take root and transform our lives and our world. In your name we pray. Amen.